name is Evan and I use he, him pronouns. My name is Ian and I use they, them pronouns. My name is David, I use he, him pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits, a podcast about Romeo and Juliet stories. We're joined this week by David Blix, the author of the book Master of Verona, which is a prequel in some ways to the Romeo and Juliet story. Before we dive into that, David, can you explain all of the thousand things you do and how many times you've interacted with Romeo and Juliet as a story? Ah, <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, started as an actor, uh, then became fight director, then became director uh, and then author. I, I hated Shakespeare in high school. I mean, I had to read Julius Caesar in seventh grade and I hated it. Um, had to read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade, but uh, we got to watch a movie. So that was cool. Um, hmm. Watch the Zeffirelli film. Uh, 10th grade, they told me to read Henry the fourth part one. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and I aced the exam just by listening to class discussion. But senior year, I'd already done a lot of acting. Um, I've been teaching acting classes for a while. So we had a choice between an acting Shakespeare class and a reading Shakespeare class. And I took the acting Shakespeare class. And uh, it was like the sun came out. It's like, oh, oh the, he wrote plays. They're <laughs> meant to be performed. Um, and so uh, we were doing Romeo and Juliet. And I got cast as Mercutio. Um, and it, it was a lightning rod for me. It was, it was one of those moments where like, like, oh, this is what I want to do. This, this thing right here. I like this, this is good. Um, and so I felt very connected to that show and that role. And I kept coming back to it. I kept being hired to do Mercutio over the next few years. Um, and I came to the very, very strong opinion about Romeo and Juliet that, that has led my, my writing career. I mean, there are five, six books based on just this one thing. Romeo and Juliet is not a tragedy. It's, it's just not. Um, if you look at a Shakespearean tragedy, um, you look at uh, Hamlet or Lear or Othello, it's about a single, strong, central male figure who's the best at everything a man can be, but he has one tragic flaw that leads to his uh, destruction. With Othello, it's jealousy. With Macbeth, it's ambition, and so on and so forth. And that just does not apply structurally to Romeo and Juliet. Romeo is locking himself in a dark room during the day and then wandering through the woods at night, picking flowers and making up sonnets to a woman that he, he he's, who has rejected him um, if he's talked to her at all. And she's going to become a nun. Um, he's he's a romantic idiot. And the moment I realized, oh, he's an Orlando. He's a Claudio. He's a romantic, lovesick idiot from one of the comedies. And the moment I made that connection, I was like, oh, of course, Romeo and Juliet structurally is a Shakespearean comedy, lovesick young man, intelligent young woman, disguises, mistimings, clowns, musicians, secret wedding. It has it has everything except the shipwreck for a Shakespearean comedy, uh, except right in the middle where at, right after the secret wedding, when everything's supposed to be revealed, Taming of the Shrew, secret wedding, everything's revealed. Uh, 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 all the various, you know, uh, uh, 12th night, secret wedding, everything's revealed. The moment the secret wedding happens, instead of the reveal, you have this oddball character, this clown who has made this really foreboding speech that foreshadowed everything. Mercutio gets his ass stabbed. In fact, it's Romeo who, who does it for him um, and gets in the way of this, this fight uh, and gets Mercutio killed. And then Romeo does the hot-blooded Italian thing and gets revenge. And that, oh, I am fortunate. Well, I always hate versions of Romeo and Juliet where Romeo wins by accident, where Romeo wins in desperation, that Tybalt's going to kill him and Romeo just somehow manages to win. I like it when a, a furious Romeo just gets in there and stabs Tybalt and just stabs him again and stabs him again because he killed his best friend. And he has that moment right after where he pulls the knife out. He's looking down. He's like, yeah, I did it. I killed him. I killed the guy who killed my best friend. 
mind. I just killed my wife's cousin. Oh, I am fortune's fool. And that's what that moment is to me. Um, and of course, from that moment on, all these comedic characters are trying to find comedic endings to uh, solve a, a thing that can't be solved in a, in a fun way. Um, they, you know, the nurse says, go ahead and marry Paris. And the Juliet's like, how dare you? Because in a, in a comedy that would work and here it very much does not. And the friar uses the same plan as in uh, uh, much to do about nothing. We'll pretend she's dead, everything will be okay. Um, and this time it just involves drugs um, and that doesn't work out. So all of it leads to the, the, the brilliant, I like to compare Romeo and Juliet to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when it first appeared, uh, because no one had ever seen anything like it. They called it Disney's Folly, and you can't sit through an hour and a half cartoon, you'll go blind. And, and yet adults and children walked out of that show weeping, and they had to change seat cushions across the country and ever all the theaters, because kids were wetting themselves. They were so excited and terrified by something they'd never seen before. And I think that's what Romeo and Juliet was. I really do, because it's a, a, a comedy that goes wrong. Shakespeare turned the, the comedic form on its head with this story. And it's, it's a fascinating, brilliant revisitation of what, what a story can be. And Shakespeare broke all the mold with that one. Well, it's interesting that, that you talk about it as defying genre, because I think people always want to break up the Shakespeare's, this neat, like these are the histories, these are the comedies, these are the tragedies and so on. But it occurs to me hearing you say that, that Winter's Tale also does that thing where, you, where it starts out one way and turns into a different genre at the end. Totally. Um, well, and Othello. Othello takes place immediately after the secret wedding. So, I mean, it's a comedy up until the beginning of the play. Um, <laughs> it's it's one of those moments where, oh, it's going to go bad. But we've had all the comedic things up until then. Have you had the chance to, like, direct a Romeo and Juliet since since coming to this realization and really, like, try to put that into effect and play the comedy up in the beginning? Oh, several times. I, I, have, I have done, oh, how many times have I done this show? <laughs> uh, it's it, I, I've, I've directed it one, two, three, four, five, six, like eight times. Mm -hmm. um, oh, wow. But uh, I've done f versions of, you know, I've done the, the fights for you know dozens of versions. I've done the show over 50. I know the show better than I know most people. Um, and uh, we were backstage at Michigan Shakespeare Festival a few years ago. And all of us who have been part of Romeo and Juliet in various ways through Crew of Patches or the MSF tour, just professionally, we all just started in the dressing room doing the lines. And we got halfway through the show before it was time for to go on stage for our, the show we were doing <laughs> that was not Romeo and Juliet. Um, it's, just so, it's just so often done. Um, and I, I never get sick of it. I never do because I'm, I'm so in awe of the storytelling of it. And I have my tricks and I have the things that I like to do. But yeah, I, I, I have uh, been able to direct it on the professional and at the college level um, and been able to play around with these ideas. And um, I've had producers come to me when I, I show them, you know, videos of, of my fights for the show. And they're like, the, does the comedy stuff really work? Yes, it really mm -hmm. does, because it's my <laughs> joy. And I discovered this as Mercutio when I was 17 years old. If I can make them laugh as Mercutio with the, oh, I am hurt right after that fight with Tybalt. Um, it means I, they've forgotten that I'm gonna die. And if I've, if I've made them forget that I'm gonna die, then I have them, because I'm gonna suck all the joy and life out of them the moment they come out, Red Valley comes on and says, uh, Romeo, Romeo, brave Mercutio is dead. Um, and it, that's, that's it's, it's a sucker punch, it's a gut punch that if you play the tragedy from the beginning, two households, both alike in dignity and fair I hate that so much. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I hate playing the tragedy from the beginning. I hate playing Mopey Romeo from the beginning. 
Um, that's not the true Romeo. The true Romeo is the guy who leaps the wall and uh, and is so excited to see Juliet and then bounces around with the friar and bounces around with the guys the next morning. And Mercutio says to him, now art thou Romeo, now thou art what thou art in art as well as by nature. Uh, Because this is the guy who's not in love with love, he's in love with Juliet. And, you know, he was putting on the airs of being a lover which was a thing. There was a book of love, which you had rules. A lover uh, does not sleep. A lover does not eat. A lover can love. Nothing prevents a a woman from being loved by two men, but no man may love two women. Um, Tons of of rules for what was known as courtly love. I think there are 33 rules for courtly lovers. Hmm. Is that what Juliet's referencing when she says he kisses by the book? Yep, that is exactly that. Oh, that that makes sense. Yeah, he's doing... Yeah, there, there are certain rules, although I have to say that I love, and first of all, I, I a recent realization, the name Romeo means pilgrim because you go to Rome. So oh. his pilgrim stuff is so is so on the nose, like, hi, I'm a pilgrim. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to tell you my name, but no. I'm a pilgrim. Um, but their wordplay is so brilliant and wonderful. And that first scene that they have during the party is a perfect sonnet. And I love that their their exchange is just a perfect little romantic sonic with a kiss built in. On the other side of the spectrum, if you've dealt with the text of Romeo and Juliet a thousand times, is there a least favorite part for you that you that you are like, why is this scene here? This isn't working. Or, <laughs> you, or do you think it's a perfect play? Um, it's it's certainly not a perfect play. Uh, the scene that okay, so what I did, I was in a production of Kim Rubenstein uh, directed a production I was in at Chicago Shakespeare when I first moved to Chicago twenty years ago. She did something that was brilliant. I don't know where she got it from. I didn't ever ask her, but uh, I have used it ever since. So after the death of of Mercutio and Tybalt, you have two scenes back to back. One where Juliet is waiting to to find out about, waiting for her wedding night. And the nurse comes in and brings her the news. And she laments and she yells at Romeo. The nurse yells at Romeo. And the nurse, uh, Juliet yells at the nurse saying, how dare you yell at Romeo? (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh, then we get the a mirror image scene where Romeo is hiding at the friar's cell and the friar comes in and tells him, you're banished, 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 banished. Yeah, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the nurse comes in and said, takes you know, go see Juliet tonight. What Kim did, which I just found brilliant, um, she intercut those two scenes. Mm. So they're happening simultaneously. Um, and I, for me, anything that moves the story along faster is brilliant and wonderful. And it, we get all the information and the, you hear the And it, it was wonderful to ping pong between the two of them where they're both saying banish it at the same time. And you get all the information, but you're on that downward slope heading towards, you know, more information and more events happening. So it, it cuts down on the, the uh, excess emoting. The other thing that's always cut that makes me sad um, are the musicians who are coming into uh, uh, what's supposed to be Juliet's wedding to Paris and they're hanging around and they have a conversation with Peter after they're, you know, the friar says, Hey, everyone take her inside. She's dead. Oh no. And they're all weeping and wailing. Um, it, it, it can, the scene cannot be taken seriously because um, if you play all the lamentable, whatever, all the, Oh, whoa, she's dead. She's dead. My child is dead. My soul and not my child. Well, all that um, if, if you play all of that to the hilt and, and play it straight and you desperately mean it, um, then there's no weight when she actually dies. Hmm. So th- this needs to be over the top Italian opera weeping and wailing. And you have these musicians over on the side saying, hey, what are we going to do? Should we leave? No, no, no. Let's, let's stay for the funeral and then have dinner after. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> um, and, and so you have the musicians there undercutting the scene hmm. with Peter 
deliberately doing the comedic thing to remind us, oh, she's not really dead. There's still hope. Because I think a lot of productions do play that scene as as really tragic and you see the fam- family's actual grief and it's you know touching yep. in some way. And it, it totally takes the air out of the end because mm-hmm. and when she's really dead, they seem uh, cold because mm. they have all of like three lines. Mm. Oh, wife, look how our daughter bleeds. <laughs> That's it. It's either they played seriously or they just cut it, and, especially in the Zeffirelli film. They yes. cut so much in that one. Well, yes, they're, they're, they, they cut so much. I mean, I love the Zeffirelli film. I, I love it to death. Uh, but they do cut quite a bit. Um, they certainly cut a lot of dirty jokes. I'm always stunned that this is the play that we teach high schoolers because it is mm-hmm. the dirtiest of all the dirty plays. <laughs> it is by far. It has more penis jokes per stanza than anything else that Shakespeare wrote because it's it. they're Italian teenagers. Oh, my God. If you ignore the prologue, the show begins with two guys walking down the street talking about sex and violence. I'm going to thrust Montague's men from the wall and thrust his maids to the wall. And it's, it's just so, you know, grossly like locker room talk guys. Um, and, and this is what we teach ninth graders. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's when I learned it as well. But exactly. Well, and the, the yeah. nurse, the nurse tells the same dirty joke and she thinks it's so funny. She tells it three times. She's just like, she's so in love with, I'm going to make sure everybody hears the joke. And you sure it was an actor in Shakespeare's day who was improving this joke and the audience was losing their mind at this joke. So if you, know, oh, you, you like that, we'll tell it again. Oh, you like that, we'll tell it again. <laughs> I mean, I can relate. <laughs> right. I can relate. So I was directing a production, ah, directing, um, hmm. and I was I was cutting lines and, and doing. It was my first time directing Romeo and Juliet. I was taking it really seriously. I'm like, okay, how does this fit here? How do I do this? And how do I? And I, I didn't know what I didn't know at that point. I was trying to figure things out, and I was I was figuring out, you know, who I needed in my cast, how many people I could put in, and um, and I, I get to the final scene. I'm like, okay, who's on stage? Who's on stage? Okay, so Paris is there dead, and Romeo's dead, and Juliet's dead, and the, uh, the, the we need the servant who finds them, and then the Lord Capulet and Lady Capulet and the prince are all in, and in comes Lord Montague, and uh, the prince says, come Montague, you are early up and, uh, to see your son and heir more early down, and Montague replies, my liege, my wife is dead. Grief from our son's exile has stopped her breath. What further woe conspires against mine age? And I'm like, well, okay, well, we don't need Lady Montague because she's dead. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to figure out why on earth is Lady Montague dead? She has two lines in act one, scene one. It's the last <laughs> time we've heard her speak. So clearly in Shakespeare's time, the actor who was playing Lady Montague is playing somebody else at this point, which totally understandable, totally fine. But still, structurally, it really bothered me. The Lady Montague gets to the final death. I mean, we've, had, we've seen Paris and Romeo and Juliet all die on stage and then we get this offstage death one offstage death is supposed to be symbolic of something some kind of ending death is symbolic of an ending um the only thing that ends at the end of the show is the feud capulet and montague shake hands so lady montague's death is symbolic of the end of the feud well that didn't make any sense to me (laughs) and that's when the light bulb went off i was actually in the shower because you have great ideas in the shower Mm -hmm. i was in the shower thinking about this and uh the light bulb went off oh 
oh, Lady Montague was the cause of the feud. She was supposed to marry Lord Capulet and ran off with Lord Montague instead. Uh, and it explains so many interactions in this in this play to me. And it's 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 not playable. Shakespeare doesn't need my help. It's mm-hmm. not something that I, I, I've I've staged it with the actors using that in mind. And I, I thought it informed things nicely, but I don't think the audience picked up on it at all. It's not Shakespeare does not need my help. Um, but it's still to me it explains all kinds of things. Um, it's why the feud is not taken particularly seriously. It's it's not you know it's a feud, feud between two families over a, a love thing. One guy stole another guy's girl. Yeah, all right. There nobody's died in this feud yet. There've been three brawls in the street this summer, but nobody's died yet. And okay, the prince is you know saying, hey y'all, cool it. Next time I'm going to kill somebody really, and nobody's taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is uh, Capulet is a doting father, a doting adoring father who wants his daughter to get older before she gets married and all these things. Um, and it, it, that tells me two things. One, that he married his wife when she was too young. She says that I was your mother much upon these years that you are now a maid. So it means she was already a mom by the time she was 14, um, meaning that she was married when she was 11 or 12. Gross. Um, <laughs> but Capulet's reaction when Juliet says no to p- marrying Paris is very telling. He loses it. He absolutely loses his mind. Um, and if the girl he was supposed to marry said no to her father that way, um, it's very triggering for him. And it explains why Cap has this extraordinary reaction. So uh, again, Shakespeare doesn't need my help and actors can play what they want. Um, for me, it was a fascinating idea. Um, that I couldn't let go of. And so I did the production that I was directing and uh, explored it a little bit, but I couldn't let go of the idea. So I started, you know, noodling ideas for writing down a story. And that's when I started researching Verona. And I found out that at the time that uh, Romeo and Juliet would have taken place, uh, Dante was in Verona and Petrarch was in Verona and Giotto was in Verona. Um, And all of these things coincide with the rule of a guy named Congrande della Scala. And that began my 20-year uh, love affair with the city of Verona. You could have written a story that it, that is just like, here's the players of, of the uh, Montague and Capulet, or in your telling Montecchi and Capuletto families 25 years ago. Uh, but you, you included all these other elements as well. Right. What's the bridge in that gap where you said this is going to be a historical fiction novel that spans a much larger arc? It's, it's interesting. I had the idea for the novel, but I didn't know what kind of book it was going to be until my wife, uh, who I was not married to her at that point, but she was, you know, friends. She, uh, she gave me a book by Dorothy Dunnett, The Game of Kings. Um, and that's the first book in the Lyman Chronicles. And I had never read a novel like it before. It was like, you know, it opened up gateways. I didn't know books could be like this. It's just amazing. She was incredibly erudite. She just expected her readers to keep up. I loved her a lot. She makes you work for it though. She's one of those authors. You really need to, to struggle with it. And once you're into the hundred pages, you're in for five, six books, but it's, it's rough. Um, but I saw the scope of what she was doing and I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. So I started writing and clearly modeling my, not my entire style, but some of my, my story structure on her books. And as I started doing the, okay, I'm writing a prequel to Romeo and Juliet. What's the time frame? How does all this work? I used the spelling that uh, Dante uses when he mentions the Capulets and the Montagues, who were real family, uh, families he mentions them in, in Purgatorio, in I think the 15th Canto. Um, he goes on this rant about uh, feuding families and feuding uh, uh, cities in, in Italy. 
um, and how Italy's tearing itself apart um, in the middle of Purgatorio out of absolutely nowhere. Researching him, I found out that Congrande was his patron. Um, I learned all this stuff about them, but also looking at the plays during the party, uh, they mentioned, uh, Juliet points out different people at the party to the nurse. And who's that? Oh, that's so-and-so. Who's that? Oh, that's the son and heir of, of, of oh, that'd be young Petruchio. That's what it is. That, that'd be young Petruchio. So young Petruchio? Oh, is Petruchio at this party? But then we get an earlier thing where uh, the boys crash the party in masks and Capulet says to his uncle, hey, when was the last time you went to a party in masks? Oh, it's been, it's been 25 years, not since the wedding of Lucentio. So we know that the wedding of Lucentio happened 25 years before Romeo and Juliet giving us the time frame for Taming of the Shrew. And once I had that, I was like, oh, all the Italian plays can be part of all this. I can start drawing in all the Italian characters who are very specifically named. So we get Shylock and we get Beatrice and Benedict. And we get the course of the, the, the four books that I've written so far, we get everyone except the Othello book. Um, Othello could only take place in a 40 year window that falls out time, outside my time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, for everything else that can fall within this time frame, um, I have a lot of fun bringing in all of the Italian Shakespeare characters, including obviously two gentlemen of Verona, setting that up um, and and playing. I mean, Verona is is a is a go to. Petruchio's from Verona. He goes to Padua, but in uh, Verona for a while, I take my leave to see my friends in Padua. Um, that's how he starts to play. And so all of these characters are in and around the same area of Italy, the northern part, um, what we today call the Veneto. It's in the Venice area, but it's, it's Verona was its own city state. It owned a nearby city um, and it was at war with Padua. And so all of this is is absolutely fascinating and fit the story I was telling perfectly. It helped guide me. Um, and yet uh, I got to shape and, and stick in the characters I needed. Well, it's a fun Easter egg for people who know those characters, um, but it, does, it doesn't feel too too winky, too like like you have to understand who they are to to appreciate those. Which I thank like. you. I, I I very much appreciate you saying that. Um, every now and then, I feel like I'm I'm too on the nose. Um, I try and put one scene from a play in each of the books. Um, for this one, it's uh, the Taylor scene from Taming of the Shrew. Oh, right, yeah. So um, we should do a like quick synopsis. Do you feel like you can elevator pitch the like the arc of the book? Sure. Uh, well, looking looking around for characters, I was trying to figure out whose whose eyes. Uh, I didn't want to be on on. I didn't want to take sides in in the the Montagues and the Capulets. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm telling the story of the origin of the feud. I wanted a third, a neutral third party, um, and so I struck upon the idea of Dante's son, Pietro, who real dude. Um, I've actually stayed at the vineyard that Dante's son Pietro bought in the year 1353. Oh, wow. His family still lives there. My wife and I have been guests there a couple of times. Um, so the, the elevator pitch is the origin story of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, in 1314, Dante, in exile from Florence, comes to Verona with his two sons. Um, his elder son Pietro is drawn suddenly into the uh, the intrigues and war between Verona and Padua, and also the personal intrigues of Verona's prince, the great Congrande della Scala, also known as the Greyhound of Verona. Um, while there, he and his two best friends uh, have a falling out, and uh, as they start feuding over a woman. Yeah, that's that's the uh, and you know, it's all about war and attempted assassinations and. Uh, secret plots and there's an evil scarecrow like villain and yeah it's there's 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 quite a lot going on in the story I well this is on the elevator pitch 
this is a series and, and it seems like right. a lot of the at least we the synopses of the books that come after this one it seems like a lot of the action is about uh uh Congrande's heir and uh pietro's journey and, and it moves away from the the feud in verona yeah there's Unfortunately for the character of Mercutio, I looked at uh, the relationship between Congrande and Dante. Dante dedicated um, Paradiso to Congrande, um, mm. but there's oh. a yeah, his, the third part, the part of his his, his great divine uh, comedy. Um, he dedicated to his great patron, the guy that he called the Greyhound. And there's a prophecy at the very very beginning of the Inferno which is all about the Greyhound, who will defeat the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf and uh, uh, bring about a new age of man. Um, and everyone called Congrande that, but I was thinking, oh, what if it's, what if it's Mercutio? And because we know Mercutio is related to the prince somehow. They call him the prince's near ally and the prince's kinsman. Um, so I made this little bastard son um, a kid named Chesco, uh, he's, he's going to grow up to be Mercutio and I have him go through all sorts of horrible trials. Um, we stay with Pietro a lot through the series, but as, as my young Chesco grows up, um, more and more gets thrown at him. Um, a lot of which is inspired from the Queen Mab speech and other things that Mercutio has said. Oh, um, okay. I have, I have a lot of fun trying to create events that would have him have that PTSD moment in Romeo and Juliet. So I'm throwing those things at him. You bring up the like justifying the Queen Mab speech. And I think that's so interesting because like, like when we started this podcast, I was like, this speech sticks out to me like a sore thumb. I'm not sure what it's doing here. I'm not sure why it happens in the middle of, of the action, why the action stops for it. So it's interesting that you've like taken the time to to dig into it and take it somewhere. But how do you how do you read the uh, the King Mab speech, the Queen King Mab? How do you read the Queen Mab speech divorced <laughs> um, of, the, of the context you've created? Right. The Queen Mab speech, first, I, I obviously approached it as an actor um, playing it. And just the, if you let the language lead you, the language itself, without trying to think about anything more than that, the words themselves become harder to say as you go through the speech. Mm. It starts out very light and airy and tripping off the tongue. Um, she comes in shape uh, no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, very front of the mouth, very uh, lips and teeth. And it's very, you know, uh, fun to say and then by the end of the speech, this is the hag when maids lie on their backs, presses them and learns them first to bear. It's very back of the mouth. It's very guttural. It's very it's, it's literally harder to say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I let that inform me. Um, and so he's having a lot of fun making fun of different professions in these things. And then there's a twist and the twist happens. You can feel it. And then anon drums in his ear at which he starts and wakes and being thus frightened swears a prayer to and sleeps again and it's that moment where mercutio is having some wartime ptsd mm. um, and then this it goes straight to childbirth this is the hag when maids lie on their backs presses them and learns them first to bear making them women of good carriage learn to bear women of good care this is all birthing um, pregnancy stuff. So one thing I've known from the very beginning, uh, since I was 17 years old, is that Mercutio lost a love in childbirth. And I, I totally buy into the uh, Mercutio being bisexual, omnisexual, uh, uh, having, having romantic feelings for Romeo. I buy all of that. I don't like it when I see it played with Tybalt. Mm. Um, I think that, that that tends to inhibit the show more than it helps. The, the Romeo stuff works fine. 
he is usually the place where people tr- try to add queer subtext to the story. Yes, yes. Mercutio, right. well, Mercutio is just, he's, he's, he is, you know who he is? He's the, the Kit Marlowe of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kit Marlowe <laughs> being famously gay mm-hmm. um, is, he's the perfect representation for that. So uh, it, it makes perfect sense that he, he is the, the character. That, I mean, obviously in the, in the, the, the um, Baz Luhrmann film, um, he's the one that comes to the party and drag. I mean, it's just, right. you know, that's, and he was terrific. Um, and th- that performer did a great job as Mercutio. Uh, I've always been sad that they decided to lean into camera spinning and flashing lights and loud music and sounds rather than letting him do the speech. I would love to have heard his Queen Mab oh, uh-huh. uh, uninhibited. And for me, you know, anything that obscures the text of Shakespeare is is bad. Um, mm-hmm. The text, the text is why it exists, and so anytime we obscure it, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, especially let let good actors do their thing. Um, and I would have loved, I would have loved to have heard his map. But anyway, uh, I, I the, the speech itself starts out light and airy, and then becomes dark until Romeo cuts it off and Mercutio gets in his face. And yeah, yeah, this is what happens to people who have dreams; they get fucked. So you know what? No dreams for you. And the speech is a mirror to the play. It, it is it is just it's there to chart out it you know it, it's a lovely fun thing that's just light and airy and nothing and then it twists in the middle and becomes dark super fast and it's no mistake that it's the character who gives this speech who's the one who dies and whose death causes the show to go off the rails obviously you did a lot of research for this book but it where do you how do you find the line between i'm going to use research for this or i'm going to invent something how do you um thread that historical fiction needle yeah uh i invented a lot more early on because i had because i didn't because i didn't know because i didn't know Uh, (laughs) and uh then the city of verona was very kind to me um i've been there a half dozen times in the last 20 years um they've flown me out to give lectures it's it's quite wonderful um and the, it, uh, what was hilarious to me and stunning was a lot of the stuff I invented turned out to be true. Yeah. Um, I, thought <laughs> I, was, I thought I was creating Roman ru- ruins underneath all the cities because I mean, it just happens across Italy. There are Roman ruins and cities just build up on top of them. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I discovered that they're absolutely Roman ruins underneath the city of Verona. And if you go in the basement, I actually was talking to a friend of mine who's visiting Verona today. I said, make sure you go in any shop you go into, ask to see their basement because they legally have to let you see their basement to see the Roman ruins really oh that's a pro tip for italian travel right (laughs) right it's it's fun it's it's a good time he's like i see your basement all right and they get down there and they have to move their cars because there's on top (laughs) of plexiglass that's you can look down and see the Uh um, it's 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 hilarious uh but and so i was i was inventing things that turned out to be true which is a lot of fun and then there are there are inspirations that uh you know could only come from visiting we were walking through Verona, my wife and I on our, it was on our honeymoon, in fact, in 2002. Um, uh-huh. And uh, we were walking through the city of Verona one night with a couple of professors and we're just walking by a, a building and I, I see a waist high door. It stops you know, just, just at belt level. And I, I point to it and say, well, I've been seeing those all over the city. What are those? And the, one of the professors looks at me and says, oh, that's the death door. And I say, excuse me? Oh yeah, <laughs> the living and the dead during the Middle Ages couldn't uh, couldn't use the same door. Uh, so you had, the living had a portal for them. And then if somebody died in the house, there was a door for them. Oh, so knocking at death's door is a literal thing. Oh, it was, wow. was a death door in the houses. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, that's the scene. That's a scene right there, of course. 
So uh, anytime I discover something like that, that's that's where the joy for me comes from. Like, oh, that's a that's a fun scene. I was visiting a church in Verona about six years ago. Um, it was outside the city, and uh, 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 there's a cistern underneath it that was used to as from the earliest Christians coming by trying to paint the gospels on the walls as education because nobody could read. Um, and it was this hidden place that had originally been a nymph, uh, a nymphaeum, something like that, um, where they used to worship water nymphs, and they they started worshiping Christ there. Um, but it was very hidden, and now a church has been built up on top of it. But it's still down there. But it can also still flood. And I was like, oh, that's the scene. So these these are the things that I, I glom onto and want you know to throw at uh, and make action sequences out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a great sense of action in the book. There's a lot of different action sequences in, in, the, in this book. How different is it, because you've done fight choreography with the theater, how different is it staging a fight uh, on the page as opposed to uh, with, with bodies in space? I don't know if I've gotten better or lazier in recent years. Uh, for this book, <laughs> for Master Verona, I was on my roof. Um, I had a very, uh, I lived on the 13th floor of a building. Uh, and so I could just go up on the roof and there was very flat space, wide open. And I was out there doing the choreography, figuring out each and every move that the characters made mm-hmm. oh, wow. in, that, in that duel in the middle of the book. Um, and I, I, I found weapons that I'd never seen used before the, from medieval uh, handbooks. And I was like, I'm putting that in there. That's fantastic. Um, and try to figure out how, if I were going to cheat in uh, uh, a duel on horseback, how would I do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to do all those things. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I went to the, the original source material and then just figured out how my body moved. And I pulled up a couple of friends and had them sword fighting with me up on the roof uh, to figure out how their bodies moved because no, no two bodies move the same. Mm-hmm. So, right. uh, yeah, I, 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 now when I'm inventing, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that move because I've done enough fight choreography over the years. And I'm like, oh, I'll throw that into here, this book. I'll throw that into this thing here. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about it is that the I felt like in the fight scenes, I always understood what was happening. And yes. I think that's hard to hard to get across what bodies you're doing in space. So kudos. Well, thank you. Uh, be, being a fight director, violence is always a story of desire and denial. And you can't get uh, wrapped up in the mechanics of it if you lose what people want. Um, and so I want to do this or I need to do this to stay alive or I'm trying to kill him or I'm trying to disarm him or whatever, whatever the desire is. Um, if you're following the desire, you can follow the moves. So, so along those lines, you've obviously worked in the theater a bunch. There are parts of this, of this book, reading this book, that reminded me of, I mean, of movies, of uh, right. video games. There was a part in the beginning where I was like, this feels like Assassin's Creed, where someone like takes <laughs> you to the next fight, and then there's a fight, oh. and then takes you to the oh, fight. Oh, you haven't, yeah. Book book two is my Assassin's Creed book. I, yes! I, 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 I love 100% that. 100% cop to having played that game, and <laughs> having friends come up to me and say, you've played Assassin's Creed. Yes, I've played Assassin's Creed. Um, <laughs> but that said... Um, I had, I had not played Assassin's Creed when I started visualizing, I was in Verona, I was looking at the roofs. I'm like, oh, I could get to that rooftop. Oh, I, I know how I would scale that building there. Oh, that building is close enough to that building. So you could leap from there. uh, I I was doing that even as a kid, but in Verona, it's very easy. I'm like, oh, I could, I could do that. Well, and I was even thinking just about more how, how the plot moves you from, from fight to fight and how the fights also tell the story. Oh, yeah. But if um, if this story had to be adapted into, into another medium, what what medium do you think it would be best suited to if it had to be? I mean, movie, 
uh, obviously it's already a book, but um, stage play, video game. HBO series. Right. <laughs> well, obviously the, H- the HBO series is because you could you could do the deep dive into mm-hmm. some of the, it's a little bit too long uh, to be just a movie. I think you need to cut it in two to make it a, a, a decent film or, or just really truncate it, which is totally fair. There's a time jump in the middle that would, you know, if, if I was going back and rewriting the series, I would probably divide the book into two. But I think of books as as story arcs. And I think that that the final scene of this of this novel is so important to the whole overall story mm-hmm. that it had to be involved part of the first novel. It had to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um and because there are some there are some reveals that, you know, I had not planned until I was writing them. And I'm like, oh, that happens. OK, great. And that uh, it made the book sing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 people have asked to adapt it to the stage. And I'm like, yeah, try. Um, nobody's succeeded yet mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. making the adaptation happen. Um, I'd love to hear it as an audio drama. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Good times. But no, HBO series is, is definitely the way to go. <laughs> I was going to say the ending of of, of this book. Uh, it felt like the perfect like season finale. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like it just felt like so perfect. I was like, oh, I right. want to see the continuation right. of this. Like, make sure you tune in next season to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, muddying. I I was admiring my lead character too much, and I I had to take that away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was too much in love with writing this guy who was too damn perfect. Well, and I was really surprised in your author's note that you say, like, all that is true. Like, he just was some sort of half God, half man. Right. Uh, Congrande, Congrande. I mean, he was not a great builder. Um, he didn't he didn't architecturally leave a huge footprint on Verona. But everything else, um, he he changed that city a lot, a mm-hmm. lot. Um, his statue is still he and, and his nephew, Mestino, um, their statues are still up. Their family ruled the city for about a hundred years, um, but Congrande really expanded it to its 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 highest heights. But in the early versions of Romeo and Juliet, all the stuff that Shakespeare's story is based on, um, the Bandello and the Luigi di Porto and all of that, um, they they mention um, either Congrande or his or his elder brother Bartolomeo as being the rulers when R and J happens. So that's a change that you've made from those versions because yes. or it, because he's not oh. still. Yes, I've I've pushed everything down the road twenty five years. Yeah, there, somebody wrote a a play of that that like runs concurrent to R and J that has Dante in it. Um, I've never seen it, but I I read the script. Uh, that is is what Benvolio is doing during most of the play, and actually he's having an affair with Rosalind, huh. um, which, is, which is why he's like doesn't want Romeo to look at Rosalind. It's a funny premise. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 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 but he's very much sets it in uh, the playwright very much set it during the, the, the reign of like it was a 1302, 1304 around there when Bartolomeo was still alive. Hmm. Well, and the inclusion of Dante in your version, from my perspective, seems to help you uh, with one of the big themes in the novel, which is getting the characters to talk about like fate and the stars and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talk about Starcrossed. So Dante, I mean, he's seriously the all of all of Paradiso is each each part of heaven or the heavens are planets and stars, and you know he, he talks about astrology constantly um, in in throughout the, throughout the novels. Um, his his Paradiso and Purgatorio and Inferno. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was clearly going to be a theme. We talk about them being star-crossed lovers. The series ended up being called star-crossed because of that. Um, and it's, it's what do you do when fate 
uh, dictate something that you don't want. Um, and that's really, that's really what it is. It's fighting fate. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the idea in Macbeth of what if Macbeth hadn't killed Duncan, would he still have been king? I've always wanted to create a video game. Like you're going to be king, uh-huh. depending on how you get to be king. It depends on how you know, it determines how long you're going to be king. You murder everybody, you'll get to be king for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the actual Macbeth ruled for like 17 years and he was the, the only king to ever unite all of Scotland without fealty to anybody. He kicked out the Norwayans and they were not beholden to the, the, the English and Scotland was Scotland under Macbeth, um, which is why he gets such a bad rap in English literature. I did enjoy very much uh, at the end, your, your inclusion of mentioning him. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tried to try to give the little nod to that story <laughs> because these are the things I think about, you know, free will, free will. It's, it's it, a lot of it comes back to my, my struggling with, with a concept of free will. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to have that expressed from the perspective of characters who had a very different worldview than we do. I mean, the, even like the duel, the idea that the participants in a duel aren't going to win based on how good they are at swordsmanship, but are going to win based on whether or not they're right. Yes, that it's, that it's, you know, and in this book, there's a duel over Genoza, who is going to become Lady Capulet, mm-hmm. nope, Lady Montague, being stolen away from uh, Antony, who is going to become Lord Capulet. And the oh, the side I read, of... I read the next one so you can meet Lady Capulet. She's, she's a monster. Oh, good. See, I do have to read the next one. Um, <laughs> uh, and all the all the baby, instead of like your baby Muppets era of baby uh, R&J characters, apparently. Yes. <laughs> but but you, you, you get a little baby Tibble. You get a little baby Tibble in this book. <laughs> do they get a cute song, though? That's all I want to know. <laughs> oh, the I throw, musical I throw in some songs. But they're, they're period songs, you know. They're, 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 not, they're not cute. There's... <laughs> But in that duel, the sort of like thorial oversight of saying, you know, like in the modern day, uh, we, you know, believe that people should marry for love. And of course, in that in the time period you're writing about, the duel is over whether or not Junota marrying for love is appropriate, given that her father was giving her away as property. And the side of the duel that thinks you should marry for love is the side that wins. I thought that was interesting that that like clash of of our modern viewpoint as readers versus uh, the viewpoint of the characters in the 1300s. Oh yeah, well you have to realize. I mean, we talk about the high mortality rate, you know, the people not having long lifespans, but that's that's mm-hmm. aggregate. Because if you live past 30, you're going to live to 60. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the 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 high mortality rate, a lot of it comes from a third of all women dying in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they kept marrying them young. I mean, Giannotis is you know not. She's not too young at this. She's not 14 the way that Juliet will be two weeks away from her 14th birthday. Um, she's what, 17 in this book? But uh, still not, you know, not a, a, a fully adult woman. But you think about fairy tales and how embedded in the culture stepmothers are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all because of moms dying in childbirth. Just, just, it was a constant. And so marriage has to be very practical at that point because you need someone to take care of the home and raise the kids that you're, you know, that you have. And so it becomes much more about property and, and less about romance and love. And yet this is the period of time when they're trying to convince knights uh, to, you know, honor love and be, you know, the Arthurian romances were coming along. And what's fascinating 
is the change in about a 50 year span of everyone being looking at the King Arthur Lancelot Guinevere triangle and saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with that story to everyone saying, oh, Guinevere's terrible. She cheated on Arthur. She needs to die. It's it's a fascinating how it goes from like the French version to the, the, the English version. Um, and mm-hmm. they get much more uh, uh, slut shamey about Guinevere uh, cheating on her husband. Mm. Yeah, the whole period is fascinating in terms of its literature. And I've spent way too much time reading literature <laughs> for this period. Uh, another aspect that I think is interesting about the story is that if you if you go into it as a reader like I did, being like, okay, this is going to deal with the origins of the Montague Capulet feud, you have this incredible fake out where in the first couple chapters, Pietro befriends uh, Mariotto, who's like, my name is Romeo, but don't call me that. And you're like, okay, that's Romeo. We're here. Right. It's gonna. It's about to right. happen right now. And he has this. He has this terrific line uh, when they're uh, riding to the first battle, where he's like, I, something like, "I can't imagine ever wanting to be famous for for being a lover." Something along those lines. <laughs> so, which is like, aha! I see the irony, you know. And then you, and then you sort of like realize as the Genoza drama starts happening, like this can't be the same person. But there was a part of the novel where I was like, imagining that that it was, and that he had. Uh, you know, married for love twice and the sling travel is going to happen to Gino. So then he just do it all over again in like a year. <laughs> <laughs> he never learns his lesson. Well, yeah. well, Romeo, the person who never learns his lesson is uh, Friar Lawrence, clearly. Never. never. No. <laughs> because we, we meet him here as, as a young friar and he marries the, the the two young lovers in this story. And then he's like, oh, it just seems so romantic. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I love Friar Lawrence. I love playing him and I love him as a character. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course he's he's a huge coward in the play. Um, right. And I built I built that in here, and he has a, he has a long backstory. We find out in book four of you know what, what he why he's so fearful and cowardly and all these. Mm. Um, what's uh, what's what's fascinating, of course, is that that the reason Mariotto's name is also Romeo is when Romeo is asked, you know, uh, uh, the nurse says, uh, "Who? Which of you is young Romeo?" Romeo says, "I am the youngest of that name for fault of a worse." So hmm. he's clearly inherited the name from his dad. It's the oh. only reason I, I had him do that because you, I had to give, because he says it. So I have to give his dad the same name, but he don't ever want to call him Romeo because I don't want him to be Romeo. Yeah. So he's like a, like a something, a something. The, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Thank Romeo you. Junior. Romeo Jr. I, you know, just trying to take all the little pieces from the play, all the little hints of various things and just kind of seed them in as the fabric of the world. If anything, this really makes me want to go back to the play and just like just look at it and go, oh my God, like this and that. And it's mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, that's that's the goal. That's the fun. I it's I, I don't want to ever do, I mean, uh, I don't want to write a prequel that that isn't a good story on its own, that that only feeds into RJ. So I'm trying to to do all the meat and the deep dive and tell stories. That's why just just telling the 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 feud part of it wouldn't have been interesting to me mm-hmm. because we already know that the feud exists, so we don't need to know much more. So mm-hmm. that becomes the subplot of a much larger story, right? That we're going to follow through the Italian history and real history and uh, uh, Shakespeare history. And, and I imagine that the book appeals to people who don't know much about Shakespeare at all, because it feels like you could get a full books enjoyment out of it without knowing um, about the Shakespeare characters and those references. Yes, that's that's also a goal. I just want it to be a good book on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if you if you get the Shakespeare references, that's a lot of fun. They're Easter eggs. There are tons of them. Uh, but if if you don't, it will not detract from your appreciation of the novel. Hmm. 
do you feel like you'd ever approach uh, Shakespeare's other characters and try to put them in their own multiverse of madness? Or do you think you're, you're <laughs> are you, and are you done with the Italian characters or are you, going, are you continuing with them at some point? I have four more books to write. I am, wow. I am <sighs> taking a break. I have four more to write. I'm in fact working on one of them right now. Uh, oh. Yeah, I, 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 finishing book four uh, was a major milestone. I was like, oh, okay, whew. And I've, I've been noodling with the story, but I've been trying to figure out what, I, I know events that happen. I don't know my story arcs. I don't know my character flow. And I've been slowly working on that for the last several years. Um, as I work on other things, I've got distracted by uh, Nellie Bly and mm-hmm. uh, writing uh, other other pieces. Um, one of which is on uh, something else. I've I've got another Shakespeare character. I've just recently I wrote a piece of it. I don't feel comfortable being the uh, the straight middle aged cisgendered white man that I am um, writing the, the Othello book alone. So I've approached another author. Mm-hmm. Uh, to co-author it with me, and she has agreed. Um, and so I am uh, very excited to dive into that. Uh, so I'm, I'm tackling Othello. Um, I've long wanted to write an Othello novel, and I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I've, I have that story very clearly mapped out. Nice. I'll look forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. <laughs> Yay! Um, would I tackle any others? Eh, not re- Oh, I'm, I'm certainly playing with the magical side in a kind of an ancillary way. Okay, I'm, I'm writing a, a vampire novel um, that uh, draws a little bit from the more supernatural elements of Shakespeare's plays. So Ooh, I'm I'm just completely like fascinated and like like I said, I just really want to go back and look at the Romeo and Juliet script and just kind of put all the pieces together. And also want to continue with this series. I think it's incredibly well written, and I'm I'm, I'm happy that we read it. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, I'm always delighted. I never push my books on people. I'm just like, yeah, it's out there. It exists. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'm always, but I'm always excited for people to read it. Cause I want to, you know, like I, I had a friend finish the the first book and came over to my house and just sat on my, my couch and just said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> How could you do that? And just, you know, um, and I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly, like most people, I'm sure I, uh, in your circle and was aware of your other talents first. And I was like, David can do this also, I guess. Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, several things happened at once. I, uh, Jan and I had uh, our first child in 2006. We were pregnant with him in 2005 when this book was sold to its publisher. And in 2006, um, a year before it was published, uh, I turned equity, uh, joined the Actors Union, doing a show at the Goodman with uh, Stacey Keach doing a version of King Lear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one took me to Washington DC and blew up my life. And it was great. It was great. Uh, but I had, I had a bunch of choices to make. I'm like, okay, I'm a dad, I'm an author, and I'm now a professional, like well-paid actor. Something has to give here. And so um, as much as people think of me as the actor and the fight director, uh, okay. I consider myself a writer because once we had a kid, I liked doing the job that kept me home. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. That does seem like a real benefit. And that's fair, honestly. And, and if your writing style is ADHD enough that you can like step away and and help <laughs> with kids and then come back and switch. Yeah, the, the bad thing that's been you know, terrible for my writing has been social media because that's that oh. ADHD is like you know okay I finish this paragraph I'll go see what's happening on Twitter and then I'm gone for an hour. <laughs> uh, 
that's that's that's, what, that's the, the danger for me. Or YouTube explainer videos. Please explain mm. to me this thing that I already yeah. know. Oh, yeah. You can call that research, I think. Right. The next one, Voice of the Falconer, is particularly short. It's very fast paced. It only takes place over a course of three months instead of three years. And it, you'll see a lot more familiar faces. You're going to be there for Juliet's birth. Oh. Mm. Well, and also okay. Ches- Chesco's so fun as a baby. I want to meet him as a as a uh, eleven year old. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think he's, that's, that'll be a fun character. He's he's, he's going to annoy the hell out of you. Just just so you know, I, I, he's, <laughs> he's he's Mercutio as an eleven year old. Right. Not, yes. You know. I'm not gonna lie, like especially at the end with like spoiler, but like at the end with the the fire in the carriage, I'm like, oh, now this makes sense. This is Mercutio. Got it. Of course, he'd be able to escape from that. Got it. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that's. I there was I threw a lot at him in that book, and I, it just keeps coming. It does not get easier for him. But it sounds like it keeps on coming through for the rest of the series. Oh, it does. I've got another ten years of his life to write. He's fifteen right now. Um, we're, we're we're fifteen years into the Romeo and Juliet timeline between the origin of the feud and the story, and so he's got another ten years before he's back in Verona for the events of the play. Well, thank you for giving us your time and joining us. I know we both enjoyed the book um, and I'm sure we're both excited to read more of it. Where can people find your stuff? Uh, DavidBlixt.com, D-A-V-I-D-B-L-I-X-T.com. Um, you can find me on any platform that you, where you buy books or audiobooks. Uh, the audiobook of Master Verona is out there. If you uh, want to find it on any platform, it's available. Um, you can find it in hardcover, paperback, or ebook. And that goes for most of my books. And thank you for listening, everybody. This has been another exciting episode of If the Shoe Fits, Starcrossed. And you can join us again in two weeks' time when we'll be covering probably the most faithful adaptation of Romeo and Juliet we've covered so far, the movie Titanic. Not well known, you know. No one's really ever heard of it. Instead of an indie film, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And fun fact, I don't know if you know, this is really fitting. Um, Shakespeare invented Celine Dion. So. So we'll see you then. So we'll see you then. Bye now.